please. I think everybody got a handout, didn't they? Did we have enough tonight? If not, and you'd like one, see me after service and we'll uh, get one printed off for you. We're going to look at chapter 12 tonight. Chapter 12 marks a new beginning in our study. We're going to begin to look, and much of what we're going to look at, we've already seen before, but we're going to begin to see it from another perspective or from a different angle. Uh, Chapters 4 through 11, we're going to... It's almost like we were looking through a telescope. But in chapters 12 through about chapters 20, it's going to be like we're looking through a microscope. So far, what's been going on, we've had broad hints as to the character of this terrible period of time known as the Great Tribulation. And up to this point, John has been uh, painting a portrait with broad strokes, but now he's going to change brushes on us. It's almost like he's been painting a, a landscape scenery, perhaps a mountain scenery. But now he's going to begin to paint the details like the trees and the birds and and things like that. Up to this point, we've examined the character of the Great Tribulation. But now we're going to begin to look at the characters in this drama. Specifically, the characters of the Great Tribulation. Now, we're introduced uh, during this time, over the next few weeks, we'll be introduced to what I want to call, not the Holy Trinity, but the Hellish Trinity. We're introduced to Satan, the dragon, to the Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, and then the false prophet, the beast out of the earth. Now, with this introduction, we're plunged full force into that terrible period of time, and uh, the worst period of time in the history of the world, again, known as the Great Tribulation. Jesus Himself said, speaking of this time that we'll be looking at, that it would be trouble like the, unlike the world has ever seen. And specifically, Jesus calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, one of the focal points during this time, and one of the people... Uh, during this time, who will receive the brunt of the wrath of the devil is going to be the nation of Israel. So you need to understand tonight, we're definitely on Jewish ground, okay? The first point that I want you to see, look at verse 1. The first scene that unfolds for us tonight is a strange woman. And John begins by introducing us to this woman. Understand, this is not a matter of courtesy. It's not, you know, ladies' first policy. This woman is one of the central figures in this, uh, this prophetic or apocalyptic drama. And you're going to see as we go on that she becomes increasingly more to the center stage as the curtains of time begin to draw close. So look at verse 1 of chapter 12. <coughs> it says, And there appeared a great wonder or a sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, the first order of business that we need to take care of is to identify who this woman is. And I think it's easy to see this is not speaking of a literal woman. No woman, uh, no matter how bad ladies you want to, no woman can be clothed with the sun, you know, have uh, the moon for shoes, and then have uh, stars for a hat. That just that doesn't happen. So the language, I think, plainly teaches us it's not a literal woman, but it's depicting something else. And again, she's called a sign or a wonder in heaven. That speaks to the fact that it's not a literal woman, but it's symbolic of something else. So we know by the clothing, we know by the sign, we're dealing not with a real woman. So let's look at another clue. I think it's on your handout I give you. The Scripture, I think, gives us clues to who this woman is. And let me give you another one. It's in Genesis 37, beginning in verse 9. 
this same symbolic imagery is used. It's speaking to Joseph, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Surely uh, shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his heart, or his father dwelt on this matter, thought on this matter. So here we, here we have the same type imagery that's used in the book of the Revelation. And I believe with the imagery, imagery and understand the symbolism, we understand that this woman being spoken of in Revelation 12 is the nation of Israel. Israel is God's sign nation. She's God's billboard, God's yardstick, God's blueprint. As Israel goes, so goes prophecy. If you want to know what time it is on God's prophetic clock, then just turn your eyes to the nation of Israel. So this woman is none other than the nation of Israel herself. And this is confirmed as we go on. We're going to see in further detail. The second thing I want you to see is the seed of this woman. Look at verse 2. And she being with child cried travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Now the child that's being spoken of here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself because it was the nation of Israel that gave birth to the Messiah. The Apostle Paul describes his people, the Israelites, in Romans 9, verse 4 and 5. He said, As a people to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God, Amen. Now, one of the glories, folks, of the nation of Israel is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah of the world, came from the Jewish people, came through that lineage. Genesis 3.15, remember Jesus is called the seed of woman. In uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 9, He's called the son of the tribe of Judah. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, He's called the son of David and the son of Abraham. In uh, Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, He's called the star of Jacob. So over and over and over again in Scripture, we're given a reminder that not only did God become a man, but God became a Jewish man. It was through the nation of Israel, through the Jewish people, that the Messiah entered into the world. Now, one of the reasons why I love the Jewish race so much, and one of the reasons, Christian, that you ought to love the Jewish race so much, if for no other reason, is because our Lord and Savior Himself was a Jew. And I'm going to tell you something. The Jewish people are still the apple of God's eye. They're still close to His heart. and They're still His chosen people. Now, I want you to see verse 3, the sorrow of this woman. And it says, And there appeared another wonder or sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Now, this great red dragon, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It's none other than the devil himself. We're going to see in verse 9 where the dragon is referred to as the devil and as Satan. So here he's described as a great red dragon. Now, remember red, that's the color of blood. That's the color of war. Uh, do you remember in uh, chapter 6, I think it's verse 4, the second horseman was red. Why? Because he brought with him murder and death and destruction. Jesus said concerning the devil one time in John chapter 8, verse 44, he said the devil is a murderer and from the beginning he's been a murderer. We're told that uh, this great red dragon has seven heads. Remember the number seven is the number of perfection. Uh, some people say, well, it's, it speaks of completeness. Yes, perfect completeness. The number of perfection. Now, heads, that represents wisdom 
in Scripture. So, he has perfect and full wisdom. Let me give you an Old Testament Scripture. It may be on your hand out. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12. It describes the beauty of the devil before he fell from heaven. And the Bible says he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And then in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 17, speaking of Satan after he fell from heaven, it says that his wisdom was corrupted. So here's what I want you to get. Satan is wise, but it's corrupt wisdom. He has a perfect, full wisdom, but it's a perfectly corrupt, full wisdom. Then we read he has ten horns. Now remember horns? That's a symbol of authority. That's a symbol of power. Seven crowns. Well, you know what a crown is? A crown speaks of a symbol uh, of authority as well. So you have power and authority. So this uh, tells us the devil during this time, We're talking about the time of the great tribulation is going to have complete, perfect power and dominion over this world. Remember in John chapter 12, 31, Jesus called the devil the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. Remember what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world or of this age. But I want you to look at verse 4. This satanic ruler is not alone. Verse 4 says, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. (coughs) Now, stars here are used in a symbolic sense. Uh, For instance, we call, you know, people movie stars or sports stars. When we think something is special, we, we call it a star. Well, they're symbolically used here. And let me explain the background of this. When Satan, eons ago, when he rebelled against God trying to usurp the throne and take over the kingdom of heaven, he was defeated. But along with his rebellion, the Bible tells us that a third of heaven's angelic army rebelled with him and went to fight against God and the other two-thirds of heaven. All right, now you're going to see this displayed in just a minute. But they revolted and joined forces with him to try to overthrow the king of the kingdom. And they were all cast, cast out. Now, listen to me. These fallen angels went on to become uh, what we call demons. So uh, I want you to get this. Get this in your head and into your heart. There's a tremendous, folks, demonic horde that roams this earth. And I'll explain more about that in just a moment. Now, that may, may seem a little dis- bit discouraging to you. I don't think it's discouraging. One-third fell. That means two-thirds stayed there. That means for every demon, there's two angels. Okay? Now, from the very moment that Satan came to this earth, he was ready to kill God's son. He was ready to do away with Israel's child as soon as he was born. The devil even had his puppets ready to do his dirty work down through history. For instance, think about Herod. We read about Herod in Matthew chapter 2. Then when he heard about Jesus being born, what did he do? He said, go kill all children two years old and under. Hoping that if he destroyed all the children, he would get the most important child. He would kill uh, Mary's little lamb. Then in Luke chapter 4, we're told about how uh, people there were, were mad at Jesus. And they were going to take and throw him off a cliff onto his head. And the Bible said that he just passed through the midst of them. Then again, Satan himself in Luke chapter 4, when he was tempting Jesus, it said that he took him to a high pinnacle there at the temple and said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself off. Throw yourself off because won't the angels lift you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So we read here, folks, and what we see is the devil's ancient hatred for Jesus and his ancient hatred for the Jewish people. The person, Jesus, uh, 
Satan hates the most, more than anyone else in the world, is Jesus. And the people Satan hates the most, more than any other people in the world, are the Jews. Now, he doesn't hate, hate Jesus because of the Jews. He hates the Jews because of Jesus. Don't ever take, and I've heard this, try to explain away like this. Don't ever take uh, the fact that the, the Jewish people, their persecution is a sign that, that uh, they're not special to God. In other words, rather than doing that, take it the other way. Take the sign of their persecution as a fact that they are special to God. That's why they've been persecuted, because they are God's chosen people. Now, look at verse 5. First part of verse 5. This is the son of the woman. And it says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. This son becomes a sovereign. Notice that phrase, uh, with a rod of iron. The only time that's ever used in Scripture, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was prophesied of this in Psalm 2, verse 7 and 9. It says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. There it is, that phrase is. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That prophecy is going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ because Revelation 19.15 we read, Now of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he shall smite the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now look at the second part of verse 5. We're given a brief biological sketch if you will, of the, the highlights of the life of Jesus. It says, And her child was caught up to God under the throne. So here we see the, the rise of Jesus. Now, if you notice in this, no man's ever mentioned just the woman and the child. Why? Because Jesus was born of a virgin. No man was involved in it. So in this, when it talks about, And her child was caught up under the throne, I believe we see several things. First, we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But also, I believe we see the ascension. We see the rapture of Jesus Christ. Notice the words caught up. That's the very same words uh, that's used, uh, speaking of the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 17. But then we also see the reign of Jesus Christ because he's not just caught up, but he's caught up to the throne of God. Not just taken to heaven, but taken to the throne of God. Next, I want you to see in verse 6 the safety of this woman. Verse 6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God. God's prepared a special place for the nation of Israel that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days or twelve hundred and sixty days. As we're going to see later on in, in more detail, folks, the, the great fuss during the tribulation period is all about the nation of Israel. It's all about God's chosen people. So she's going to be hunted. The nation of Israel is going to be hounded like a like quarry uh, by a pack of dogs, but God's going to protect her. Israel, and the reason God's going to protect Israel, His chosen people, because they cannot be assimilated into the nations, nor can they be exterminated by the nations. They're part of God's overall plan for this world and for eternity. In the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant that he makes with the nation of Israel. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He's going to sit in the very Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple. He's going to declare himself to be God in the flesh and the man that the world worship him. Jesus warned of this. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. 
Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the, on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to gather his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those with nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world unto this time no nor ever shall be. This period of time, the, the, the great tribulation we're talking about in the last three and a half years of it, it's going to make the Holocaust seem like a Sunday school picnic. Now, I realize there's a lot of folks saying, well, the Holocaust never happened. Maybe they ought to pick up a history book once in a while. Uh, or maybe they ought to visit with some older folks who can e- explain to them, yeah, it actually really did happen. I had the opportunity years ago as a young man to sit down with a man who was uh, in World War II and who liberated several of those camps. Uh, what a horrific thing in the history of our world. But I'm telling you, what's coming during the tribulation period, the Holocaust won't hold a candle to it. God's going to secure the nation of Israel, however. They're going to go to a place that He has prepared for them. That phrase, uh, prepared for, that's used, the actual Greek wording used, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. And that's in John 14 where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. That's the same wording, same phrase that's used here. So just like Jesus is preparing a mansion for us in heaven, God is preparing a hiding place for the nation of Israel on earth during this time. But then God's also going to supply all their needs. He's going to give them what they need in this three and a half year period that's described as as 1260 days. He's going to sustain her and meet those physical needs. Now I want you to see the second scene that we have. Look at verse 7, the first part of it tonight. There's a war and there's a war in heaven. It says in verse 7. Now I think it's interesting Folks, to see the great tribulation begins with a war in heaven and ends at Armageddon with a war here on earth. Now, this is a strange thing because when you think of heaven, you think of heaven as a place, uh, you don't think of having war. You think of heaven as a place of peace and tranquility, a place of happiness and joy. Everywhere else in the book of the Revelation, heaven is described as a place of worship. But now here in this next few verses, it's described as a place of war. Look at the vision of war. That he gets. Look at verses 7 and 8. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. So the participants in this war are Michael and his angels versus uh, the dragon and his angels, or the devil and his angels. Now, the reason why Michael. The archangel's chosen to lead is because he's not just a mere messenger angel, but he's also a warrior and he's also a soldier. He, uh, for lack of a better terminology, I don't know how else to explain it. He's God's field general, okay? One of God's commanders. Uh, Matter of fact, he also happens to be the great defender for the nation of Israel. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So Michael, he's a commander of the angelic army in heaven, but he's also a guardian angel of the nation of Israel. 
Now, the name Michael, you know what that literally means? It means who is like unto God. I think it's ironic that the one whose name means who is like unto God defeats the one who had the ambition, uh, according to Isaiah 14, 14, to be like the Most High God. Now, it may surprise you to realize at this present time, you maybe you've heard this before, but Satan has access to heaven. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to popular belief, Satan is not in hell. He's not yet been cast into hell, but for the present time, he roams this earth. Job, chapter 1, beginning verse 6, says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth upon it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless, an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and has possessed you. his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, now remember, all this whole conversation is taking place in heaven. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your power, only do not lay a hand on this person. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So in Job 1, we're told, folks, two primary activities of the devil. In Job chapter 1, verse 10, we're told that he accuses the saints in heaven. And then in verse 12 of Job chapter 1, we're told that he attacks the saints on earth. But the time is coming when Satan will forever be cast out of heaven, and he's no longer going to have access to heaven. First, we have the vision of the war in verses 7 and 8. Now I want you to see the violence of this war. Look at verse 9. It says, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, or the serpent of ancient times, of old times, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now the word cast out, that literally means to be expelled in a violent fashion. To be, uh, basically, Satan's bounced out of heaven on his rear. That, that's what it's speaking of. Uh, this war is a violent war. Look at, that, look at the word fought in verse 7. That word in the Greek literally means to make violent war. In other words, it wasn't just a tussle, okay? But it also means to make a short violent war. I might add that on there as well. It's a violent war. Why? Because the enemy that's being fought is a vicious, violent enemy. If you want to know what God really thinks about the devil, look at verse 9. Look at it again. This is the most exhaustive description of the, of the devil anywhere in the Bible. And he's called four different things. And each one of these illustrates part of his nefarious character. Notice he's called, first of all, a dragon. Why is that? Because he's strong, because he's powerful. What comes to your mind when you picture a dragon? It's a picture of some fire-breathing, man-eating beast that kills and wipes out everything in his path. Look at the second name that's given. He's called serpent. Why is that? Because he's subtle. You know the word serpent in the Greek literally means shining one. And, I, and folks, I'm convinced many people still have the idea that Satan is some guy in a, you know, painted red with a mustache and horns and a pitchfork, you know. That's not Satan. That's not the way the Bible describes Satan. Uh, the Bible doesn't describe him as some ugly, uh, terrible-looking creature either. He Actually, he's described as being able to, to change himself, transform himself into an angel of light. 
when he was that serpent of old who deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden, I'm convinced that he was one of the most beautiful creatures man had ever seen. He's also called the devil. Why? Because he is sinister. That word devil means slanderer or accuser. And that's his specialty. He loves to slander the Savior and he loves to accuse the saints. Because think about this. Satan is a liar. He will lie to you. He will lie about you. Then he will lie to you about you. And he will tell you uh, that you're saved if, and when you're not saved. Or he'll tell you you're guilty when you've been forgiven. Or he'll tell you you're weak when you know, in fact, because of Jesus Christ, you're strong. You're more than a conqueror. Then notice he's called Satan. You know what the name Satan means? The name Satan means adversary. And he is an adversary. Why? Because he's a shameful creature. He deceives, the scripture says, the whole world. He's the one who opposes. He's the one who deceives. Jesus said uh, in John 8, 44, that he's a liar and the father of all lies. So there's no denying that the enemy that's fought and then therefore the enemy that we face, he is a powerful, vicious enemy who means to do us harm. But take heart. Because notice the victory of this war. First of all, we see victory in heaven. Look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So there's victory in heaven. In verse 9, I find this interesting. In verse 9, we read that He was cast out. Then in verse 10, notice we read that He is cast down. Understand, Satan's down and out for the count. Satan's been cast down from his position as angel. He's going to be cast down out of heaven. He's going to be eventually cast into the bottomless pit. Then he's going to be cast in the lake of fire forever. So let me say this, friend. If you go with the devil, you're on the devil's side. You're on the losing side. He's already lost. But also, look at verse 11. We read about the victory on earth. And they overcame him. Talking about the dragon. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. <clears throat> Here are three keys to the victory over the devil. Matter of fact, uh, you could put it this way. There are three C's of victory that are given here. Note, look at them carefully there in verse 9. First of all, the first C is that of cleansing. The second C is that of confession. And the third C is that of commitment. First, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's by cleansing. 1 John 1, 7 tells us, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Let me, let me make it real clear. Satan is a powerful being, but you know what he fears? What he fears, what makes him quake and shake above everything else? The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross of Calvary brings chills to his evil heart. <clears throat> Remember in verse 10, we're told that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Well, let me set... How, how this works. Heaven's courtroom, all right? The judge has got the Father. Satan's the prosecuting attorney. Uh, our defendant is the Lord Jesus Christ because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Satan is throwing all these accusations at us. He is doing everything he can to prove that we're guilty. And all along, I've told you before, he's got us dead to rights. We are guilty. And when he rests, God the Father, the judge, says to God the Son, the defense attorney, he says, do you have anything to say? And our defense attorney don't say a word. He just pulls his sleeves back, raises his hands, and shows the scars. And he said, Your Honor, I plead the blood. 
the gavel falls and God the Father says, not guilty, innocent. I'm going to say it again. What terrifies Satan is the blood of Jesus Christ. The devil may try to call you dirty, but I want you to understand something real clear, Christian. Uh, You're not dirty. Under the blood of Jesus Christ, you're clean. You're cleansed. Not just now, but forevermore. What God has cleansed, nobody has a right to call unclean. You know, I remember the story, you probably heard it too, of Billy Graham when he first started preaching. There was a learned professor that he said he respected from Cornell University that came to Billy Graham and said, you know, you are a fine preacher. And one day you will make a very fine preacher. You're very gifted and articulate. But if you're going to go far, you're going to have to quit preaching on the blood. Billy Graham said from that very moment on, I determined more than ever to preach on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's the only thing that has power. That's the only thing that brings power to any message that the preacher preaches. The fact of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. They also overcame him. Not only by the power of the blood, but also by the word of the testimony. That's confession. So let me make it clear to you. It's not enough just to put your sins under the blood and be cleansed. You need to let other people know that you've been cleansed and also let them know that they can be cleansed as well. So you, Christian, you need to be vocal and verbal about what God has done for you. I'm going to tell you, I'm convinced, and the older I live, the more I'm convinced of it, that one of Satan's greatest desires is to silence Christians. We need to learn how to give testimony to a lost world. Because, let me make it clear, a Christian with a glowing testimony is worth an entire library full of arguments for Jesus Christ. I think it's time to let the redeemer of the Lord say so. Amen? But also, also, it's important to constantly talk about Jesus because, let me give you a few reasons. Number one, it strengthens your faith. Uh, number two, it'll encourage the saved. Number three, it warms and encourages your heart. It'll give you confidence in the power of the gospel. It'll win the lost, but it also glorifies the Lord. They also overcame him because, notice the scripture says, love not their lives unto the death. Now that's commitment. That's commitment. These Christians had made up their mind they were going all the way with Jesus. Their attitude was live or die, sink or swim, once and for all, down forever, every inch, every ounce, every nerve, every fiber, every muscle of my being, I'm given to the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it means that I have to die for doing so. So I'll ask the question, do you love your life more than death, or do you not love your life even to death? You know, Jesus said one time in the New Testament, those who try to save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives for His sake in the gospel, the same shall find it. Their philosophy, these Christians talking about here in the book of the Revelation, their philosophy was we'd rather be dead than deny Jesus Christ. So think about this. We've had some wonderful things said about our Savior, some, some descriptive, descriptive things said about Satan, and then some things said about the saint. So let me recap real quick. The Savior went up, Satan come down, and the saints continue on the victory. That's what we've covered to this point. Now I want you to see the final thing. Look at verse 12. There's a strong warning that's given. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Now the result of this war is worship in heaven, but woe on earth. 
Now think about this fact, folks. Whenever God pronounces a woe, we know that judgment and wrath is coming, right? We've seen two woes up to this point, so we understand that. This is the third woe, and it's more severe than the other two. And the woe is primarily on Israel and then upon the believers on the earth. Satan is now at this point like a caged lion. He no longer has access to heaven. He knows he has a short time. He knows it's almost midnight on God's clock. So he vents his vengeance in these last hours, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. He vents his vengeance and his wrath on Israel and on the saints on earth. Now look at verse 13. First of all, Israel is hated. And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Have you ever wondered why Israel has been and is to this day hated so much by both the devil and the world? Let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, is Israel was who God used to bring about the Scriptures, to bring the Scriptures to the world. Romans 3 and verse 2, Paul says, "...much in every way chiefly, because to them were committed the oracles of God." God gave His Word through Jewish people. An American uh, heard a story one day, was talking to a Jew, and he said, you know what, one of my ancestors signed the Declaration of Independence. The Jewish man replied, man, that is great. He said, one of mine signed the Ten Commandments. Not only did the Jews give the Scriptures, but the Jews also gave the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ came through that lineage. So think about it. The Jews has given us the Word of God, but also God used them to bring about the Son of God. The two things that Satan hates worse more than anything else, the Word of God and the Son of God. Look at the next point. Verse 15. Israel's hated. Verse 15 says, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. <clears throat> now, folks, I don't believe this is referring to a literal flood. I believe it's referring to the, the flood tide of enemies that's going to come against Israel in these days. Isaiah 59, 19 says, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against them. Now, look at verse 14. Israel's hidden. And to the woman were given two wings of a, of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the face of the serpent. When God delivered Israel from the nation of Egypt and protected them, He described doing it this way in Exodus 19, verse 4. He says, You have seen what I have done unto the Egyptians and how I bore you on the eagle's wings and brought you unto Myself. So the Antichrist, the most powerful being in the history of mankind, is going to raise up with a fit of rage seeking to devour, to destroy, once and for all, God's chosen people. But once again, God's going to take them away and nourish them and protect them. Why? Because they're God's people. Now I want you to see the final point, verse 16. Notice that Israel's helped. <clears throat> and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So the flood tide of Satan's anger just bounces off the dam of God's protection. He can't do what he wants to do. Once again, God thwarts him in his plans. So because of that, he sees he cannot harm the nation of Israel. He turns his attention to the children of God. Look at verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony 
of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize I'm wrapping it up here. That kind of sounds like it ends on a discouraging note. But folks, it really doesn't. It doesn't end on a discouraging note. I think it ends on an encouraging note. For whether a child of God lives or dies, we belong to the Lord. Amen? We're His. All that matters is we keep His commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. True story. During World War I, when the bombs were falling on England, uh, many children were ordered, and, and parents, but a lot of children ordered to evacuate out to the countryside so they'd be safe from the bombs that were falling. As uh, one load was pulling out, somebody asked the little boy, said, Hey, do you know where you're going? He said, No, but the king does. You know, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have all the answers, and I know many people at times wonder why a pastor or a preacher can't give them all the answers they're looking for. Well, number one, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't have all the answers. But think about it. I really don't know at times where my life's going to take me. But you know what? I don't have to know. I don't have to have the answers. You know why? Because my king does. My king knows. My king understands. He's got it plans out, folks. My only ambition then, and if you're a Christian, this ought to be your ambition as well, is to keep his commandments and to keep his testimony. Come what may, that doesn't change. We keep his commandments and keep his testimony. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, I thank you that we're reminded once again tonight that yes, times are going to get bad in this world, but God, it's all according to your plans. And your people are always protected. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for that assurance. And I pray for everyone here tonight. They know when it comes down to it, I pray that they truly know what side they're on. Either they're standing with Jesus Christ, the winning side, or Father, they're standing with Satan on the losing side. And I pray that they be shown tonight where they stand. And if they're on the wrong side, tonight they'd get on the right side. Because, Father, your grace is freely offered. The salvation that you made possible through Jesus Christ is offered to all those who will receive it. And I pray for those tonight, tonight that need to do so. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, folks.